and this is your friendly neighborhood podcast about living in Iraq. Where we both lived for combined 11 years. That's right. So we know all the things. Except for the things we bring in the guests for. So this week we're going to answer the big question that I think we get asked probably more than any other question, Mm -hmm. um, which is, is it safe? Yeah, and I think people ask that question because they see on the news only, like, the bombs and the shootings and all of the violence and the war in the Middle East, and they assume that everywhere in Iraq, especially, is like that. I mean, when I went, we still had a military presence there, mm-hmm. and so... Yeah. yeah, I think we did, when I initially went to, I think they pulled out, like, halfway through my time there. And yeah, Baghdad and southern Iraq is almost like an entirely different country in a lot of ways than the northern Kurdish areas. But even in the south, not every town or every place is filled with that same kind of violence. So, or, you know, warfare. But yeah, the north certainly was nothing like any of that. Right. I think before I left, I was told that the area that I would be living in was just as safe as a large city in the U.S. And I feel like that was pretty true for most of the time I was there. Yeah, and I think with, you know, some things, it seemed actually like it was safer than a lot of places I've been, even in the U.S., big cities especially. There's almost no crime, like pickpocketing Mm -hmm. or thievery thievery of any sort. Even really a lot of stranger personal violence. Like... Mm -mm. No one's going to come up in on the street and harass you. Well, and also being foreigners there, right? we were also seen as someone, and, and as women as well, we were mm-hmm. seen as people who needed to be protected and cared for. Right. And so people would go out of their way to help us, watch out for us, take care of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost the, the hospitality culture of the time, like, of that area is you're a guest, which means that everyone is going to go out of their way to make sure that you feel safe. I also kind of want to say that I felt that way even in the years that I lived there while ISIS was a really serious and not very distant presence. I came back to Iraq after the summer that ISIS kind of pushed north and the Yazidi tragedy, which they just had an anniversary for, this week right after that happened Mm -hmm. even in that time I mean we'll talk about some of the precautions that were taken but I didn't in my day-to-day life feel like I was in an immense amount of danger we're not just like talking about we were only there for the good times like we both went through some some rough seasons too as far as the country of Iraq You know, there's always possible threats and possible concerns, but nothing that really changed too much of our daily lives. Like, we Mm -hmm. didn't have to live with guards all the time or wear bulletproof vests or... We didn't live on secure compounds. Like, we both lived in neighborhoods. Yeah. The houses that we live in were gated, but everybody's house is gated. All the houses are gated and have blast walls. (laughs) Yeah, like, that's just the standard of life there. And nobody is worried about those things over much. Again, with, with a few exceptions 
in there for specific times and events. I worried a lot less about my safety in Iraq than I do here. And actually, Steve tells the story of bringing his son back from Iraq. They lived there for a couple months, and his son, like, running off to go play with his friends, and Steve shouting down the street at him, like, you can't just run off like that. We're not in a rock anymore where it's safe. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> like, I exactly it know that often feeling. I felt that way, yeah. There are some things that are different because standards for that level of safety are a little bit um, different. Yeah, there's a lot more precautions taken. Mm -hmm. Probably the biggest difference is um, when you travel from city to city, you have to go through checkpoints. Yeah. And which, like a little either like a little guard shack and stuff that looks kind of similar to what we have for like toll booths mm -hmm. on highways. Sure. And or if you've ever gone on to a military base, the military base checkpoint, it's yeah. kind of a similar standard. Mm -hmm. So you drive up usually in your taxi or your car and the taxi driver says something about I'm going from here to here and they look at you and if they know English. They may be like, oh, I want to practice my English with yep. the Americans. Happened all the time. <laughs> or if they know someone who speaks English, they may want to go get that person to have them mm -hmm. try out their English. <laughs> but generally, like, if you show them that you have an American passport, they're just going to wave you through. Like, mm -hmm. you don't get asked a lot of questions. No. Like, a lot of the cars and people end up, you know, they stop. They all have to get out. They have to answer a bunch of questions, but almost every trip I ever took through a checkpoint was either entertaining and mm -hmm. short or, like, just kind of a wave through. Especially if it was all women, mm -hmm. they wouldn't be more likely to just wave us through. Yes. I did uh, several trips from Dehook to Erbil by myself, and if I was by myself, you know, the guys at the checkpoint would kind of ask, like, are you feeling okay? Do you feel safe? Like, Kind of, like, making sure that my taxi driver wasn't, like, kidnapping me or anything. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'm going to Erbil to visit my friends. Like, I'm totally fine. And they'd be like, okay, have a good trip. Yeah. Like, a little bit more than a wave through. But if it was a van full of Americans, they were just like, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. You must be some sort of official dignitary. Uh -huh. I also had a couple times where I was traveling with nationals and... I learned that the fancier the car looks, more easily you get through checkpoints. Well, of course. I mean, because that means you're a more fancy person. Right. Because only government officials are allowed to do things like tint their windows and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, if you've got a car with tinted windows, like, you have to be high brass. I made several trips with either, like, students' families or um, the school administrator at my school once. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see the, like almost caste system of, like, mm -hmm. who you are and how easily things go. I, I guess it's the WASTA It's WASTA, yeah. Um, how much power you've got, whether or not I wave you on through will make you maybe remember me or... Mm -hmm. I think pretty, pretty standardly things were, were like that. Um, I will say after ISIS became more of a threat the checkpoints around cities like the ones mm -hmm. that were you go through this checkpoint and you're in the city those got a little bit more like i've checked all your papers but you need to pull up over there 
and I'm going to go through the car and, like, check it, and you need to go into this little shack and get a pat down from the female guards that are here. And I also felt like the number of checkpoints grew. Yeah, it did. There were more even along the roads. And they started doing, like, curfew checkpoints Mm -hmm. even within the city. Yeah, the the within-the-city checkpoints always kind of threw me, because... Every now and then, if there was some sort of political event or... And our house was close to some pretty political buildings. Mm-hmm. And so around our neighborhood, sometimes there would be, like, after dark yeah. checkpoints. Yeah. And those are things that, like, it's a hassle because you end up sitting there for longer. Like, I think I sat at the Erbil checkpoint for two hours once. Oh, wow. Like, just waiting to get up there mm-hmm. because they were checking everyone. And at that point, if you were Arabic, they weren't letting you into the city. Oh, really? Uh, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. That was the time that, like, I played the poor sad white girl card because the the checkpoint guy was like asking me all these questions in Kurdish and I understood what he was asking me but I didn't really want to answer the questions or deal with it and I didn't know how to like properly answer him in Kurdish right like I got the gist of what he was asking and so you know I did the standard like this is where I'm going this is where I'm coming from but then this he wanted to I know work. like not how long have you been in Kurdistan but things like your friends that you're visiting what do they do what is their job what and I was just like I'm above board and none of this is your business <laughs> like and so I just kind of looked at him and was like I I don't know what you're asking me man I don't know what you want from me and he was like ugh fine just go <laughs> or no it was that i had a new a new ikama a your new residency, residency card. card yeah and he was like well you're not really supposed to travel in the week after you get your new residency card and i was like that sounds like baloney <laughs> and so i'm just gonna pretend like i don't understand what you're saying yeah and be like what do you want me to do because really what do you want me to do uh and he just let me go <laughs> My favorite checkpoint where I was always kind of surprised at how well being an American or, like, that worked was at the checkpoint to get onto the American, like, Special Forces base Mm -hmm. near my city. Like, we would drive up and, like, they would rattle off something to us in Kurdish, which I probably didn't understand, but maybe some of us partly understood questions or something, and we would just be like... Amriki, and they would like kind of look at us and then just wave us through. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're like, we're American, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, just fine. go. Yeah, I was like, I'm not sure you should just let us through with that word, uh-huh. but um, yeah. So I think checkpoints were the big one. Uh, I think it was also Kurdistan. Iraq is not the only place that I've I've visited and noticed this, but there are a lot more armed guards. Yeah, I think that was the biggest thing my family members noticed when they came to visit was all major buildings, even the school, and, like, you know, the movie theater, and all the government buildings, and sometimes even, like, the grocery stores, Mm -hmm. and the, like, any big public place, the mall, whatever, they all have men in camo, of various and sundry types, carrying large... Automatic. Or semi-automatic weapons. Yep. And, like, they're just hanging out, Mm -hmm. chill, drinking tea, smoking. They're everywhere. It 
feels intimidating initially, but it ceases to be a noticeable thing. Yeah. Eventually. Like, you just get used to it. Mm -hmm. And usually they're pretty friendly. Yeah. And, like, I kind of became friends with the ones at the school. I gave them my chickens. (laughs) (laughs) And they're, they're differing levels of guard, too, because, like, in DeHook... The school was far enough outside of the city that we didn't have armed guards. We just had these older guys that sat in a guard shack near the gate and, like, kept tabs on who was coming in and out. So they weren't... I mean, maybe they were armed and they just didn't, like, always carry their guns Well, because them. a lot of people, nearly everyone carries some form of handgun That's as well. True. So those aren't always as noticeable. Yeah. I mean, there's not rules about open or concealed carry Mm -hmm. in Iraq. So everyone, like, you can pretty much assume almost everyone has a gun. At least all men. All men. Right. And And they have have clothes that are convenient for concealing weapons. They do. But a lot of places will have, yeah, signs where you have to check your gun in when you show up Mm -hmm. before you can get in. A lot of restaurants and a lot of places have, like, a whole little locked cabinet where you Mm -hmm. can store your gun while you go eat. Kurdistan was the first... No, maybe not. I was gonna say it was the first place that I had to go through security to get into, like, a mall. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to go through metal detectors and they check your purse. And I noticed that they started doing that at, like, movie theaters here in the U.S. Uh Yeah, that can be a little bit strange initially, too, because you're like, I'm just gonna walk in here and do my shopping, and it's like, oh no, I gotta go through metal detector and let someone, like, unzip my purse and look in it and not really go through it just be like oh yeah you're fine go on yeah but now that you're like everybody carries guns that makes a little bit more sense to me i didn't really think about it that way that was i just remember there was one of my early days when we were moving opposite like the administrator's office or something and so we were picking up stuff from from one room and moving it to the other room and this guy, like, is just picking up stuff, and he's helping, and, you know, and he just, he hands me an AK, mm-hmm. and is like, oh, here, take this to the other room. It's this old, kind of rusty-looking, like, gun, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, wait a second. He just handed me an AK. All right, then. So I, like, carefully carried it awkwardly uh-huh. into the other room, which while like we had been doing this had suddenly filled up with some administrators and like a bunch of people from <laughs> a bunch of men from the government. And so I walk into this room awkwardly carrying this gun and it's full of all these men in suits <laughs> and I'm just like, hello. And I just like set it down on the desk and left. <laughs> I was like, oh Awkward. I'm so out of my depth. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just got handed a gun. But over my time there, I did become a lot more comfortable with them and had the opportunity to actually do some shooting in a safe Mm -hmm. place, in a safe environment, and be taught about them enough to know that, like, I'm not going to accidentally shoot someone someone if I get handed a gun randomly. If you shoot someone, it's going to be on purpose. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) I think that's one one part of... Um, safety and security that I don't really think about was whenever there's a celebration like the Mm. way they celebrate partly is to fire guns in just like into the air yeah at people and people die and people die because falling bullets can still kill you 
And so I think my first now rose, I was with a friend and it was like midnight. And so everybody was out gonna go outside and celebrate Mm -hmm. and I was at their house and I was like oh you know I want to like go see the fireworks and see the big fire pyres whatever um and she was like eh let's wait like let's wait 10 minutes for like the initial gun firing to stop and I was like wait what she was like if you go outside right now you might get killed by a bullet and that would be real bad and I was like (laughs) yeah that would be real bad real bad So I think that was one thing that was kind of like, oh, I like, that doesn't happen in the U.S.? No. I mean, maybe in some parts, but not ever in my experience. Yeah. There are kids at our school pretty regularly put together some sort of petition to make it illegal, mm-hmm. and nothing ever happened, but... Yeah. And you learn to distinguish, okay, what's the different sound between gunfire and fireworks? Fireworks, <laughs> yep. Yeah, I remember... Um, having a new a new teammate and our first our first month in the hook with her her very first month it was also like election month mm. and so there were lots of like parties and celebrations and firecrackers and um the kids in our apartment complex would go down in the alleyway between buildings and set off the like cherry bombs that are like it sounds like machine gun fire mm-hmm. and they were doing that when one night late we had gone to bed and she like woke up from it because it was it was really loud and came and knocked on my door and she was like do you hear that is that bombs are those are people shooting each other in the street what's going on and I was like no those are firecrackers like I had been there long enough to be able to be like no no definitely firecrackers definitely not guns and was kind of amused at her, like, panic, but then also was like, okay, yes, I can see how you would be in a high-stress environment with, like, political things happening and the reputation Uh that the Middle East has for Uh revolution, and then it sounds like someone's firing an AK-47 outside your window. I'll be (laughs) sympathetic, but please just go back to bed. (laughs) Yeah, no, she's not the only one. I I know of other people who climbed out of their bed and army crawled to their children and brought them all down to an inner floor and and it was it was fireworks yeah I think perhaps towards the end of my time I got a little bit too blase about safety (laughs) things because it was just kind of like nothing bad happens um which is not true you just you kind of come to a a place of like peace about it I guess Mm -hmm. that's like but there's still quite a few things that I think both of us to some extent, even still do. Sure. That yeah. are security-minded things mm-hmm. that we were trained to do that most Americans are not trained to do. Sure. Things like not sitting next to the front windows in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Because if a bomb goes off in the street, those are the people that are going to be hurt. You're safer in the back. Right. Or taking different routes to a location and not being predictable about how you're getting from point A to point B, not taking the exact same route every single week at the exact same time. Right. And not telling people, like, what you're going to do, Mm -hmm. especially on social media. Dave, our director, always says, don't tell them what you're doing, tell them what you did. Yeah. So, you know, if you went to a fun event, tell them, yesterday I went to this thing and it was awesome. Don't say, today I'm going to this thing and it's going to be awesome, you know kind of 
not letting people know your plans. Your plans are exactly where you're at or Mm -hmm. where you're going to be. But at the same time, letting the people that you live with know where you're going and when you plan on being back. Yes. And if that changes... Being in touch. Being in touch and being like, hey, I knew I said I would be back at 7, but now I'm stuck here and it's going to be more like 9. Because, you know, you want people to know <laughs> to know where you are and I feel like that's that's a good rule even in the U.S. yeah to like but it's not something I think we commonly think about think about mm-hmm. or that we assume our roommates or the people around us are going to be interested in or care right. about but that's something yeah both of us do that regularly even yeah. now and um the other thing that we've talked about before is like keeping track of like when we are driving if a car has been following us for a while (laughs) yeah um i try not to do that anymore yeah me too that (laughs) that one i'm gonna chalk up a little bit to paranoia but you know just kind of especially if i'm driving at night and i'm Mm -hmm. by myself Mm -hmm. um i tend to keep track of like hmm this car has made every turn that i have made Let's see if they follow me when I go this different direction to my house than I would normally go. Or if I go around a block somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Overall, I mean, there's those little habits that are built in, mm-hmm. but... Oh, the other one is that in a restaurant, I don't want to sit with my back to the rest of the room. Right. I want to sit with my back against a wall. A wall. And if yeah. I can be in a corner, that's even better. Yeah. You want to be able to see the whole room. Yeah. That becomes a problem when you and I go out together. It's true, because we both want to do that, (laughs) and we can't. We can't. We take turns. We sit in booths. It's true. And I think it helps that we've communicated about that (laughs) and are like, but you're going to tell me, right, if someone comes up behind me? Yes. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I remember meeting with some of the guys from the American consulate. Well, they were, you know, coming from Baghdad, but they met us up up with us in Suli. Like, all of their guys were wearing the bulletproof vests and everything, and, like, we'd run into, like, oil contractors sometimes who worked in more sensitive areas Mm -hmm. where there might be, you know, attacks or things, and they would always, even in Suli, be wearing, you know, their bulletproof vests and stuff. It always felt a little incongruous. Like, we're sitting at this nice restaurant, and, like, that whole table of men is three sizes too big because you know they've got all this gear protective gear and here we are like women who are like having Mm -hmm. a good evening with our friends and normally dressed normally dressed and yeah i feel like i was able to do all of the same things i have to do in life Mm -hmm. you know i walked places i went to grocery stores i went to the park and walked in the park and for protection of reputation, you know, I maybe didn't go out alone at night or right. ride in taxis at night. But that wasn't necessarily even a concern about safety. Right. It was more... It was more like my reputation and whether or not I was going to be considered a loose woman. Right. I will say some of that changed um, with the ISIS situation, mm-hmm. um, as they called it in Iraq, the, the current situation. Um <laughs> We have more, um, from SGI and even from the school, more rules about, like, you know, I wasn't allowed to take a taxi by myself from Hook to Erbil mm-hmm. because it was too close to Mosul. And really, it wasn't that close to Mosul, but it was closer. Or we weren't 
really supposed to be out at night at all, even mm-hmm. with if we were with other people. And we weren't really supposed to take taxis by ourselves mm-hmm. at all. And there were a couple, a few times where we kind of got the call of like, don't really even go out this weekend. Like, mm-hmm. stay, stay home, stay in your house. Like, if you need to walk down to the corner market, that's probably fine. But don't plan on being out with your students. And I'll say, too, that my students also practice the same precautions. Like, if I did go out with them and it was, like, time to leave, they would be like, we're going to send people with you. Mm -hmm. Like, or we're going to take you or our parents... I got a lot more rides from parents during that time because the yeah. parents were concerned for me and also for their own kids. Like, right. we don't want you get in in a taxi with someone you don't know. And so it wasn't just, oh, you're an American, you're a target. Like, right. anyone could be. Like, we're just mm-hmm. being cautious about yeah. everyone. Everyone yeah. everyone was a lot more cautious. Yeah. Um, and I had several students, which I thought was really sweet, but I also fully believe that they meant it that told me that if anything went down, their father would make sure that I was safe. Like, they were like, you will come with our family, and you will go to our family home, like, in this village, and we will get you out if you need to get out. And I was mm-hmm. just... And and they had parents that would make that happen, that were, like, in the right part of government to mm-hmm. make sure that I got out. Mm-hmm. And so that was always, like, reassuring and, and really sweet. Yeah. And And made me feel safe because I did, I believed them. I mean, the few times that something weird was going on in, in my city as well, it was parents of students that were like, you know, we have extra guards or, you know, we will mm-hmm. take care of this. We won't let anything happen to you. Yeah. So the parents of my students were always really incredible and supportive mm-hmm. but um, i mean there are many different types of police there too mm-hmm. right. um and so like the guards are the one type of security mm-hmm. but then there's also the asayish which mm-hmm. are like the police police but, but they're generally plain clothes but like they're, they're like, not wearing a police uniform they're like the detectives and the ones oh, who solve crimes. And almost like FBI, but they take care of everything, not just federal things. Yeah. And then there's the traffic police. Mm-hmm. And they just... Stand in a booth and direct traffic. Direct traffic. Blow yeah. their whistle at people. Yes. There like, are, they don't there have... There aren't very many of those. There aren't? Not into Hook, there aren't There's very many. There's so many in Suli, because most of the big intersections have, like, four or five. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess. And so... It's a bigger city, so that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll, and they started getting stoplights before I left. Mm-hmm. But until then, it was traffic cops at every single intersection. Yeah. And then there's, like, the neighborhood watch. Yeah, which security. is... Security. Like, in the U.S., neighborhood watch is a little bit of, like... This is more a like joke. an official person mm-hmm. who knows the name and has like all of the personal details of everybody living within his area. Yeah. Whatever neighborhood, neighborhood mm-hmm. size that is. Mm-hmm. It's pretty small, I think. Yeah. Um, but he knows every single person in there when they're at home, when they're out of town when like like he knows everything mm-hmm. and like he wanders around the neighborhood all the time like that's yeah. his job yeah 
is to keep an eye on that neighborhood and keep out the riffraff and... Again, generally, you wouldn't know who that was. I mean, you might be able to figure it out, but you're not, like, necessarily introduced to them at some point. No, and he doesn't have, like, a uniform or... Mm -hmm a sign on his house right. in the neighborhood that or a this... special like sheriff's badge no no yeah he's kind of incognito i did end up meeting mine for my neighborhoods into hook again because of the isis presence and i had a really nervous roommate um and so to make her less nervous they like the administrator of the school brought them to our apartment and was like, these are the men who are, like, watching out for you. You'll see them around. If you have any problems, here's their phone number. You can call them. And I was like, can we? They don't speak English. But I wasn't going to get in the middle of it. But um, if you called them, they would know your number, mm-hmm. and they would probably come running. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I did have to make a trip from Hook to kind of an emergency trip there was uh, an emergency with a family that I was friends with in Erbil and I had to do it by myself and so my neighborhood Asaish guy is the one that traveled with me mm-hmm. um, which meant that I got through checkpoints really easily it was the fastest trip I have ever done and that's kind of their they're kind of like I would almost consider them like a minder Mm -hmm. they're kind of they're watching out for you and making sure so i mean it's entirely possible that there were things that we just never knew about because those guys did their jobs really really well Mm -hmm. that kind of in some ways sums up a lot of what creates the security in Mm -hmm. that region is really everyone is always watching yes everything the neighbors know when you come and when you go and what you wear and whether or not you keep extra shoes in your car because the road is muddy and yeah. like and who are the people who would normally come to visit you mm-hmm. what and, their cars look like mm-hmm. and they'll chase off the like really persistent beggars that will not leave you alone uh-huh. or the strange Kurdish men who really want you to teach them English and slide love notes under your door. Mm-hmm. They will tell them, go away, never come back. If we see you again, we will shoot you. And and they would. And they would. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I feel like in our neighborhood in the U.S., our neighbors are not paying that close of attention. <laughs> and, and we have good relationships with all our neighbors. Like, we know most yeah. of our neighbors. But we... But they're not, like, paying attention to all aspects of our life they have their own lives and they're busy and they're out and in and out i think maybe we pay more close attention to their lives yeah sometimes we feel like we're we've adopted the kurdish habit of watching our neighbors but for their own safety of course 100 (laughs) percent. maybe not (laughs) and for our own entertainment yeah, that's also true. Um, I hope none of our neighbors are listening to this. Neighbors, if you are listening, we think you're all wonderful people, and we're we're proud to share a cul-de-sac with you. <laughs> Please don't peer in our windows at night. <laughs> you can find us at 
at Servant Group International on Facebook or Instagram or on our website at servantgroup.org. Yeah, and if you have a question that we haven't answered yet, send us an email or Facebook message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I mean, you look American, too. We all... What does that even mean, Hannah? I don't know. In their minds, you know, you're white and blonde and tall, probably. Yeah. And maybe a little chubby. Chubbier than, like, a curd would be.